Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Adrian Sabadi. Adrian is a Wilson Family Leo Assistant Professor at the University of Notre Dame in the Economics Department. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. Today we are talking about your paper titled Changes in Healthcare Use and Outcomes After Turnover in Primary Care. And this was co-authored with Bapu Jenna and Michael Barnett. Uh, it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, last year. But before we get started on the paper, tell me about your background in economics. Thanks for that great introduction. So as for my background, it's my economics journey started in community college in 2009 when I took my first economics class. And it was love at first sight. I then, when I transferred to UC Berkeley, I majored in economics, and I really had no idea that the career path of an, as an academic was really any real career <laughs> um, going into it. But when I was taking Christina Romer's class, which was so cool because she had just gotten back from CEA and was teaching her class, Great Depression and Great Recession. Um, I was lucky enough to have her take a liking to me and kind of take her, take me under her wing. And when I asked her for a letter to medical school, letter of recommendation to medical school, she replied, okay, I'll do it as long as you think about getting a PhD in economics. And so, you know, weeks wear on. And then actually I saw an RA posting go out working with John Gruber and I, when I read the description, do it so doing health economics work, I was like, oh, actually, this is what I want to do. So I went back to Christina and I said, actually, you're right. Like, this sounds really cool. But there's some things it requires, like prior RA experience, like state of proficiency. How do I do that? I don't have those things. And so she said that I should go around the department and knock on every door. Someone would take me as free labor under their wing so I could get some RA experience. Most of the department like laughed me out of their offices, um, <laughs> saying things like, do you know who I am? <laughs> um, oh, wow. But finally, I got to David Card, who I, of course, had no idea who he was or Christina Romer, for that matter. And I um, he was so entertained by me that he took me under his wing. And that kind of set me up in a really great position to a experience what research was like under David Card, who, I mean, not only is, has he won the Nobel prize, but he's just a phenomenal mentor, an amazing researcher, like truly driven by understanding the underlying question in a way that I really have not run across um, in any other researcher. Um, but also Christina Romer was kind of in the background too, supporting me. So that kind of pushed me into grad school. And in some ways, the rest was history. But I do want to emphasize that without those lucky encounters with David Card and Christina, I wouldn't be here. And so I really owe everything to them and mentorship and you know, thank them and thank the fact that mentors are out there. 
I love hearing those kind of stories. I love hearing those the stories where you you tried and pursued and it was tough and everybody kind of laughed at you and then you had someone who gave you a break and who really opened up your eyes to the beauty of econometric analysis. I love hearing those stories. Um, okay, so let's get into the paper. So this paper, what is your primary research question that you're looking at and what are the highlighted findings before we dive into the details? So this paper is about primary care physicians, which I'm going to abbreviate as a PCP. And basically everyone has some interaction with a PCP. The question is just, what is the value of that relationship over and beyond just the contractual relationship, right? So in a larger sense, 60% of the economy is a service economy. These service sector relationships are everywhere. You have it with your hairdresser, your lawyer, consultants. Right. So what is that value of the relationship and how do we think about it as economists? Um, so I study it in the context of primary care. What do I find? Stepping out of primary care and into a context we can all relate to, I think of the base story of this paper as I have three best friends. I live in a small town. One of my best friends moves away. What do I do? Do I go find a new third best friend? No. What I do is I just rely on my other two best friends a little bit more. And let's say that best friend who moved away was my go-to friend for doing fun things. We go mountain biking together, whatever. My other two friends and I, we don't do that. This just means that I just kind of try to get my other two best friends to mountain bike with me, even though they're not quite as good at it. Or you know, maybe that friend that moved away was really good at relationship advice. And now these other two friends are less good, but I still rely on them for that advice, even though they're slightly less good. So what if I parallelize that to the primary care context, what I show is that when your primary care physician disappears, basically retires or moves a very far distance, what do patients do? They overwhelmingly do not form new relationships. Instead, they just go see their specialist that they already had a relationship with for primary care. So it is this very much this like no new friends, even if my existing new friends are not as good at what I need them to be good at, I still go to them. I love that analogy that you made about the best friends. That is such a good way to explain it to somebody in like less than 30 seconds. If you lose a best friend, what do you do? If you lose a primary care physician, what do you do? Um, so why is this why is this an important topic that we should be talking about and investigating? Why should we be concerned about how uh, patient outcomes could potentially change if a primary care physician exits the industry? Yeah, so I think the high level is kind of what I mentioned before, right? So these service sector relationships are everywhere. Um, so my hope with the work is that some of these findings can be extrapolated there. But specifically in the primary care context, these discontinuities or fragmenting these relationships happen all the time. So for instance, there's something called non-compete agreements, which physicians often sign, which means that if they move to a new practice, they can't take their patients with them. These are enforced in 36 states. Also, retirement is fairly frequent and only becoming more frequent as the baby boomers retire. And also insurance network changes. So if I switch from one plan to another, 
often my physicians covered under the one, my first insurance plan are not covered under the second. Um, so actually 26% of patients switch insurance carriers in an average year, which means that many of them are having to re-optimize among a different set of physicians. So as health economists, we think of this as a very crucial question because these are happening all the time and at a growing rate. And if there are, if they are adverse for patients, we want to figure out how to um, basically support patients going through this transition and kind of take the good parts of the relationship and maybe leave the bad. I thought it was interesting. Uh, you mentioned in the paper that since 1975, that the number of practicing physicians older than 65 years has increased by more than 274%. So our physicians have gotten significantly older. So this could be like what you were saying with the baby boomers retiring, um, this prevalence of uh, PCPs exiting the industry is going to be a concern in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years when we have a huge exit of PCPs from the industry and that could significantly affect patients is what you're saying. You mentioned in the beginning of the paper that uh, the idea of continuity of care is a, a core principle of delivering high quality primary care and that this is associated with improved quality of care, improved patient outcomes, greater delivery of preventative services such as vaccines, for example, lower rates of hospitalization, reduced emergency department visits, like all of these things that are kind of all tied to the idea of continuity of care. Can you explain what is this idea of continuity of care and why is it so important and why is it tied to all of these, these consequences of hospitalization, preventative services, et cetera? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's a pretty amorphous concept, I'd say. I'd say it's used uh, pretty liberally across different contexts and patient groups. I think maybe it's helpful to be concrete about it and give some examples. So for instance, if I am an inpatient, if I'm in the hospital, right, and my I expect that my nurse and my physician and my physical therapist and my specialist, like all of those people who are touching me are talking behind the scenes is continuity of care, that there's communication, it's continuous, right? So it's all kind of falling on the patient to be putting together those different pieces. Let's say a 70 year old who has five specialists and two PCPs that I see in a given year, whether or not those providers are talking to each other behind the scenes and trying to kind of make the process more continuous and seamless for me is continuity of care. And why does this matter for outcomes? So I think the case five specialists and two PCPs is you don't want one specialist to prescribe drug X and then the PCP to also prescribe drug X. By coordinating amongst themselves and communicating they can make sure to kind of eliminate these anything that would be duplicative or anything harmful for me, catch things, et cetera. So not only does this continuity of care improve patient outcomes, but it can also reduce costs and redundancy. Like, for example, in the prescription example that you just gave, we've got two doctors prescribing the same thing. That's a waste of time, resources and money in some cases. So what do we currently know about this? This, these relationships that patients have with their P 
PCPs or primary care physicians? What do we know about, you talked about in the beginning, like it's, it's kind of important. It's kind of like the best friend example you gave, but what more do we know about relationships with PCPs and how this contributes to patient outcomes? So there is a ton of qualitative work in the medical journal space, right? Patients, physicians, nurses, everyone thinks this is really important. There is just so, there is so much work on it. I'd say in the quantitative sense, there is far less. There has been some work as, as well as mine, kind of thinking about this abrupt loss of a provider or someone and like what happens in follow-up work. I actually really try to precisely say that it's the relationship opposed to other things. So I would actually argue it's a fairly open question. And my hope actually with this follow-up piece is that it's really filling that hole. So what you're saying is that there's definitely some areas for open research to investigate or quantify exactly what this relationship means between patients and primary care physicians. But we know from a lot of qualitative work that it's a really, really important one. So what data do you use in this paper to answer your research questions? Yeah, so I use the workhorse of Health Economist, which is Medicare claims data, a 20% sample of all Medicare patients in the country. So this is the workhorse because it's national in scope. And you can see everything done to the patient. You can see a prescription they get. You can see physical therapy. You can see that they go to the emergency department. You can see what physicians they visit. National, it's available. You don't have to, well, you do have to pay for it, but you know, it's big. It samples patients, so it covers everything. And that's why I think it's, it's quite prevalent in the economics literature. Claims data is some of the coolest, most comprehensive data that you can get to really answer some in-depth, tough research questions. Um, so why is this data so powerful? Like you said, um, it's common in economic literature. Why is claims data so powerful? Like what kind of big questions could claims data answer for us compared to if we didn't have access to that kind of detailed data? So I think really in the last decade, actually, there's been a lot of excitement about uh, electronic health records data. And there's been a push towards using more electronic health records data. But I think even in that, people have realized, oh, wait, actually claims data is still really valuable and important. Because when you go to something like the electronic health records, it's only going to be focused on that one hospital or that one clinic. So let's say the patient goes to that one clinic, you're gonna see a ton of detail in that one clinic about what was done, but you're, but then let's say the patient leaves the clinic and then goes to the hospital, you're not gonna know that they went to the hospital. So the thing that is really unique about claims data and that is always gonna mean that it's gonna be a workhorse of the literature is that it samples patients. So you can just see everything done to that patient and you know you're capturing everything because the patient doesn't want to pay $10,000 for that surgery, right? They're going to have the insurer pay for it. And if the insurer is paying for it, we're going to see it as researchers in the billing clinics. Right. You see so, so many details of what patients go through because everyone's going to send that $10,000 claim to their insurance. 
who wants to pay that on their own, right? So you really capture everything. Um, for all the grad students or the health economic grad students listening, what recommendations do you give to them to try and obtain claims data? I know it's not necessarily, it's public data, but it's not the easiest to acquire. I've never worked with claims data myself. My advisor and I are trying to work through a DUA to get our hands on some Medicaid claims data, but I am very new to the world of DUAs and, you know, working with identified or unidentified data. So could you give some recommendations or suggestions to grad students out there working with this kind of data? Yeah, so unfortunately, it's not readily available to everyone. My recommendation is truly to find someone to work with who has the data. And um, often how that will work is you work on project X with them and then you can use the data for project Y. I actually think I was just chatting with a prospective grad student the other day and something I mentioned to her, which I thought was a big lesson I learned from grad school was that I should have kind of recognized how much this field is about apprenticeship, right? I think I went into it with this idea of like, oh, I have to prove myself and I have to write this paper by myself, et cetera, et cetera. And I would have, and I lost a lot of time. I lost a lot of effort, hours of work doing that. And I wish I had from day one said, okay, who are the people I can learn the most from who are doing work that I'm interested in? Let me work with them day one. And so I wish everyone could access claims data. I think it would be good for race research. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And so my main recommendation there is finding someone you can work with who does have access. And the truth is, is once, you know, now that I'm an assistant professor, we have so little time that we are so excited to work with grad students. I, you know, I'm in their name. I don't, I'm working with a grad student from Harvard right now. I am totally open to grad students across all institutions especially if they come to me with really good ideas and like wanting to do um, really good work. Like I'm very, very open to that. So I'd say that's kind of my big advice. I think that's a really, really important lesson that I am quickly learning in this industry of academia because I had that same mindset for the last, so I'm in my third year and I've had this mindset for the last year that I need to get a solo paper done, do it on my own and not ask for help kind of thing and not trying to collaborate with people. And it's been even more uh, stressful during the pandemic when we've all been so isolated. But this idea that you're saying, find people that, you know, you can work with them on the data and collaborate instead of suffering on your own, <laughs> ineffectively, perhaps even, you know, unproductively. Um, you can be more productive when you're collaborating with others. So that's a great, great piece of advice. And do not be scared to just email people and perhaps throw an idea out and maybe get some feedback from them. So what uh, health outcomes or what outcomes in general do you evaluate in this study? So you're looking at what happens when a PCP leaves. So what outcomes do you evaluate as consequences of this exposure to a PCP leaving? Yeah, so the main ones, I look at primary care visits. That makes sense, right? You lost your primary care physician, specialists, emergency department visits, inpatient visits, uh, spending. I also look at preventive care, prescriptions, home health, um, really just 
try to leverage the richness of the claims data and that you can see so much that's going on and try to leverage that to really tell a story about what's going on to the patient. Yeah, you really have such such rich information with that claims data, you can do so much with it. Um, so what identification method do you use to answer your research question? Yes, so the first thing I do is I um, match my treatment to my control physicians, which means that I obviously have identified my treatment physicians being those that leave. And then I just try to find an observably similar set of control physicians. I assign patients to them, and then I follow both groups over time in a difference in difference. And what do I mean by difference in difference? That means that I follow them before the exit, and then I follow both groups after the exit. And by matching these treatment and control physicians, I can basically assign a synthetic exit date to the control physicians. So you're following both of these groups over time. So you're looking at the difference and outcomes between the control and treatment group and another difference in the before and after period. And that's before and after their primary care physician left. So that's how we get the difference and difference name. And um, so your treatment groups are the patients for which their PCPs have left the industry and your control groups are the patients for which their PCPs have stayed and have not left. Is that correct? Exactly right. So I'm curious about this. Did you find, were you able to get reasons for why these primary care physicians were leaving? Was it solely due to reasons like retirement or even perhaps death? Or was there maybe something else going on in the background that we should be more concerned about? I'm curious, were you able to, to measure this? Um, so I did a little bit of work kind of in robustness, trying to look at different uh, different kinds of exits, seeing how effects differed by those types of exits. In general, everything was about the same. I'd say the average age, I'm trying to remember what I had on the paper, maybe you remember it better, but I think that the average age of exit was around like 60 or 58 or something, which to me suggests that at least kind of half of them were probably much closer to retirement age. Yeah, you're right. It was the 58. Yep, the average age of exit. Um, so, okay, so we're, we can probably deduce from that that most of these physicians are leaving due to retirement. Um, so what do you find in your results in terms of changes in primary care visits? What happens after a PCP leaves? When your PCP leaves, patients basically stop seeking care in the primary care setting. This is very much that like no new friends idea, right? So they don't form a new relationship. They just stop seeing that primary care physician that left, and given that that's their primary care physician, that means they obtain less primary care. And instead they go to their pre-existing specialists uh, for primary care. Also, there's some short-term impacts in terms of what we would typically think of as adverse events, namely an increase in emergency department inpatient visits. But those are, those are short-term and very much limited to the first year after exit. So when you say short term, that means that after their primary care leaves, there's like a bump in these people visiting the emergency room, but it's only for like a year and then it dies down afterwards. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. So I'm curious, um, with this effect of people visiting their primary care less often due to the fact that they retired, if you could look at data 
going way, way, way 10 years after their primary care leaves, what do you think you would find? Do you think these people would still be visiting these um, specialists and would be putting more of their care needs on these specialists? Or do you think they would kind of slowly go back and they would find a new PCP and revert back to their old behaviors? I'm kind of curious if you were able to see long-term, what do you think you would see? So I think these this will be maintained. So in my main kind of piece on this, the follow-up work I mentioned, I go out four years and there's no difference. And the rate of and when and a very, very, very small subset of patients do form new relationships. And those patients that form new relationships do so within the first five months after that exit and not again. So I think in this setting, patients will continue seeing their specialists for primary care long-term. I think if you move outside of the Medicare setting where Medicare is gonna focus on over 65, mostly, um, if you move to a younger patient population, I think you would see those patients forming new relationships at a much higher rate and long run. But with you know someone who has an average age of age 70 and who has five specialists on average, there's more than enough other specialists to take on the role. And these patients are quite complicated at this point, right? They probably have like congestive heart failure. They probably have diabetes. They have lots of complicated conditions. So they're seeing these specialists fairly often. Right. You're dealing with Medicare patients, Medicare claims. So you're seeing obviously different needs of care. Um, what do you think would happen if, you know, for example, I live in an area where there is a severe shortage of physicians. It's not even a small town. It's like a pretty robust, we have half a million people population, but there is like, it is impossible to find a primary care or some, a physician that would take you in as a primary care here. Like in terms of women's health, you're waiting at least three to four months to get an appointment and it, it is rough. Uh, there's, there's a shortage here. And I'm curious this, um, what you're looking at in this paper, if a primary care leaves, uh, what kind of effects do you think this would have in an area like Reno, Nevada, where I'm at, where there's a severe physician shortage? Could these, could your effects, your outcomes that you're looking at possibly be even stronger in an area that is in need of physicians compared to like New York City, where there's, you know, an abundance of hospitals and healthcare resources? I'm, I don't know if you looked at that in this paper, if there were different treatment effects in different areas, but what do you think? So the actually the follow-up paper that I have on it does look at local concentration and basically shows that primary care visits decrease similarly in low and high PCP density areas. Um, you know, it's not clear that's the right metric. I actually think the right metric would be something like uh, how many how long you have to wait to get your first appointment and things like that. This speaks to a weakness of billing claims and that I'm not going to see that. Whereas something like an electronic health records data set, I would see that. Um, but in claims data, we're really limited in how much we can say. So what I can say though, is I can look at like the number of physicians I see practicing in every, any given area and then say, okay, well, if you're in an area, and I do it per capita, so this is going to be divided by the population. And so if I say that you actually have a fairly high number of PCPs per population, you should be able to find a PCP. And so that does not seem to matter. Mm. But I'm not saying that's conclusive necessarily. 
Right, right. I should, uh, I should read your follow-up paper after this. I'd love to see the results of the uh, local concentrations. It's a huge conversation here in Nevada for rural areas because most of the state of Nevada is rural. And in many of these areas, there is like you have to drive six hours to schedule your baby delivery because there are no gynecology specialists in rural Nevada. And it can really cause havoc on emergency rooms for when people aren't able to make appointments to drive six hours and they have to show up at the ER, you know, in Washoe County to deliver a baby. And it puts a lot of pressure on emergency rooms in urban areas. Um, so that's why I was kind of interested in that. Um, what other effects do you find? What other outcome results do you find? What happens after a PCP leaves? You kind of mentioned, you briefly mentioned about a change in spending and ER visits. So I want to hear more about that. Um, so the spending really is driven by the increase in emergency department and inpatient visits. Uh, the emergency department visits are both for urgent and non-urgent. Although I would say that I think our classification schemes here are not great, but um, it largely seems driven by that. Again, in this follow-up work, I also look at um, skilled nursing facilities, hospice and home health care as kind of mechanisms. And I find that those also increase. So you can imagine a story that I'm 80, I have a bunch of chronic conditions and I was just kind of holding on by a thread. And then my physician leaves me and I say, you know, I'm just gonna go to hospice now. Like I already was kind of at the end anyway, so I'm calling it quits. That's interesting um, that you get to look at Medicare home health claims because I am working on a paper now looking at how the number of home health agencies in an area, specifically a rural area, can significantly affect the number of elder self-neglect claims that get reported to adult protective services. And I'm finding a negative relationship. The more home the more Medicare certified home care agencies we have in a county, the reduced number of claims of elder self-neglect. And it's a pretty fascinating topic to me. The data is incredibly hard to get. Um, but yeah, that Medicare home care claims would be really interesting to look at. Um, you also mentioned results in the paper that you find changes in the total number of prescriptions and chronic illness medication prescriptions specifically after a PCP leaves. I want to hear more about that. That's kind of interesting to me. If your PCP leaves, how does your, your prescriptions change? What mechanisms do you think are driving this change? Yeah, so it is an increase. That's true. It's positive, but it is about a 1% increase, which is quite small, I think. I almost just think of it as really there's not much of a change at all, but certainly doesn't look like they're going down. I think the more important story, which we try to bring out in the paper, is who is doing the prescribing. So we typically think of chronic medications as something that your PCP should be prescribing, you know, your um, statins, things like that. And basically what we show is that when your PCP leaves, your specialist starts prescribing those drugs. And so this is in line with our story that the specialists are taking over kind of primary specific care that your PCP typically would be doing. Ah, I see. Okay. And going back to the spending 
question that we were just talking about. I kind of, I want to go back to it because I want to quote something you say in the paper. You mentioned that changes in healthcare use corresponded to an increase in total Medicare spending of $189 per patient in the first year after a PCP's exit. An increase in the spending of $189 translates to $46,350 of additional Medicare spending attributable to each exiting PCP annually. So this is not, these are not small numbers we're talking here. And I want to hear more from you. I feel like this can really inform today's healthcare policy debate. Everybody is so concerned with how expensive um, healthcare is. So I want to hear from you. Like what's, I know you kind of said the things that are driving this increase is going to the emergency room a little more, going to see a specialist, but I want to hear what does this mean for Medicare and why should we be concerned about it? Yeah, so I think turnover is costly no matter what. I think any business would tell you turnover is costly. I think healthcare is unique because not only is turnover costly to the firm or the hospital or the office, but it's also going to be costly what we show to the patients. So you lose your position, you spend more, and who's paying this at the end of the day? It's Medicare, which is actually the federal government, so that's taxpayers. Um, actually, in a follow-up paper that came out this week with co-authors, we basically took that number and added in burnout. And basically, we came up with a number that turnover of PCPs results in about $979 million in excess health care expenditures with about 260 attributable to burnout-related turnover. And then the rest is more of this kind of full exit that I look at in this paper. So I think that paper actually kind of also takes that result and just extrapolates it out on a higher level, which is kind of cool. Burnout is a very is a very big question right now, especially with COVID and everything. So absolutely, burnout is a huge question, not just among PCPs and physicians, but among nurses, registered nurses, LPNs, um, especially with the pandemic. Yeah, burnout is a huge topic right now. And looking at how that's going to affect how much we're spending on Medicare, that's a hot topic for health policy experts today. Um, so do you find any difference in outcomes when looking at patients who were in solo practices versus group physician practices? What do you find? Yeah, so we show that the patients in solo practices do far worse. And in follow-up work, basically, I showed this is because they're losing that relationship and they don't have any backup relationships. So whereas if you had two physicians in a clinic, like we've all visited a doctor and we maybe have a main doctor, but sometimes we see the other one or we see the MP, the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant, right? You're not always seeing that one doctor. But in solo practices, it's always that one doctor. So these patients are very reliant on that one relationship. And when that relationship disappears, they do far worse. So do you think that this idea that if patients are in a group practice, they have one doctor leave and they can, you know, just go to another doctor that's in the same clinic in the same network. Do you think this could kind of incentivize a physician to be part of a group clinic rather than pursue a solo clinic just because the supply of patients is a little more guaranteed? Yeah. And, and honestly, if I was a physician reading this paper, I think my big take home would be, okay, if I leave a practice, I need to make sure that my patients get to know the replacement provider. I think a lot of these, the time, these transitions are fairly abrupt. 
anecdotally, often patients are mailed a letter saying that they've been transferred to Dr. X in the, in the department because Dr. Y, who's been your doctor for 10 years, is leaving. Instead, I think this paper imagines a world where, let's say I as a physician anticipate leaving in two months, that I have all of my patients who know me quite well come in and meet with that new physician, that that new physician calls all those patients, says, I want to make an initial appointment with you, come in. I need to get to know you. And I think that would greatly help this transition across these providers, because it seems like the relationship is very important. Right. It all goes back to that relationship with patient. Patient primary care relationship is so important. And it's something that we should really be focusing on because look at all these consequences that can happen when you lose that relationship. So the data that you use is Medicare claims data specifically for fee-for-service beneficiaries. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So why would you look at these fee-for-service beneficiaries compared to other types of data? Why is this data, why was this attractive in answering your question specifically? Well, it just is useful because you can access it um, given that like my advisor had access to the data. Uh, but I would say, you know, when thinking about generalizability, that these patients are going to be older, they're going to be sicker. And because they're older, they're going to have much longer relationships with these providers. So if I met my PCP once and then they leave, I don't really care that much about the new PCP I'm getting. I don't really know the one I lost. So I'd say the data is the, the data choice was a practical choice in the sense that it's really rich, it's very feasible, it's big. I think future work should think about different patient groups, different ages, you know, how do things I think the big outstanding question the paper actually has is, okay, let's say patients aren't forming new relationships. How did these relationships form in the first place? Right? Like, it seems like it's really hard for them to start again, but like, right. why did they even form the relationship day one? And my gut is that if we go back to the friend analogy, that if I'm in a place and I have three best friends and one leaves, it's okay for me to rely on the other two. But if I move in new to a place, I'm going to know I need friends and go out and try to seek out those relationships. And so I think that's what's happening, but it is an open question of how these relationships are formed because in this context, patients aren't restarting these relationships and a healthcare efficiency would be much better off if they did. And so if we knew how to get them to start those new relationships, I think we'd be better off from a welfare standpoint. What do you think would happen if you looked at like claims data for privately insured patients or Medicaid patients or patients enrolled through the marketplace, do you think you would find similar patterns or do you think these patterns are only specific for the Medicare? I'd say we broadly find similar patterns, but again, I think, first of all, if they're in private insurance, there are some, some unique institutional features to Medicare first, that patients pay similar costs, whether or not they see a specialist or a primary care physician. So if I just go see my specialist a little more to give me my flu vaccine, that costs me the same amount. The second thing about this context is that um, patients can see any provider. They don't need referrals from a primary care physician to see a specialist. 
If you go into the private kind of commercial payer context, both of those things are false. First, patients are gonna pay more to see specialists. And second, they're gonna need a PCP to refer them to a specialist in most contracts, namely the HMO contract and PPOs, obviously that's not the case. But in a PPO, you're still gonna pay more to see the specialist. And so I actually think those kind of typical gatekeeper constraints we think of as being specific to commercial plans will actually help patients reestablish care with a primary care physician. So what are some, and you've already kind of mentioned these open research questions, but what are some open areas of investigation that an eager health economics grad student might be interested in pursuing? I think the how do these relationships form is a really interesting question. Mandy Palace at Harvard is actually working on this in the context of friendships. Um, I don't think just because she's working on it, it is a closed question. She does so in a very small kind of experimental context. So, but that also highlights how important the question is, right? Like, how are these relationships formed? How do we think about them? I think a big open question in my mind also is how much do patients actually value these relationships? So because PCPs and specialists cost patients the same amount in my, my setting, I can't actually do much in terms of how much patients are willing to pay a provider they have a relationship with. But I think that would be a really nice number to have, especially as we think about it as researchers and policymakers in terms of the welfare consequences to patients of losing those relationships. Also, this work, you know, you need kind of an identification strategy and it leverages this exit of a physician. But I think it's a really important question and I don't think my work can do a good job answering it is how do we think about the benefits of these relationships at steady state? So if I know my physician really deeply versus someone who does not know their physician really deeply, I can tell you the patient A is going to be affected more by the loss of that relationship, but I can't say anything about whether or not patient A, who had the deeper relationship, got a ton more benefit out of that relationship over their decade long, kind of how long they knew each other for that decade, right? So I'd say it's steady state. It's really hard to say what the value and depth of these relationships brings. I think my work, as well as pretty much all the work in this space, uses the loss of these relationships to think about it, but I think very much an open question to think about, okay, but yes, maybe when these relationships are severed, it's worse to have a longer relationship, but maybe actually if you are in a world where the relationship's severed, you actually get way more out of it. This idea of studying patient behaviors is so fascinating, and I can see how interested you are in it, obviously, but I think it could really tell us a lot about, you know, inform current health policy debates, these relationships that patients have with their doctors. What does this mean for their patient outcomes? Does it, is there, you know, one question that I thought of while you were talking was if a patient has a much better relationship with their doctor, does that mean that they are more likely to follow up on their home health guidelines? Are they more likely to come to their follow-up mammogram appointments? Are they more likely to get a flu vaccine? Things of this like preventative follow-up nature. Do we have a better adherence to these prescriptions if your best friends, <laughs> best friends with your doctor, for example? 
So this was a great conversation. I had such a fun time talking about this. Thanks for your time. And I appreciate having you on the pod, Adrian. Thank you for having me. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Thank you.